Before we begin this episode of the EuropeLex podcast, we wanted to say a few words about an issue that's really concerning to us. As you'll have seen in the news, two journalists in Europe have died violent deaths for doing their jobs. And it's been witnessed and recorded by many that in recent years, there's been a rise in journalists being targeted by both the state and by private citizens, journalists being murdered and journalists being harassed for the work that they do. This year so far, 14 journalists and four other members of the media have been killed, while 322 journalists, 13 media assistants and 101 citizen journalists have been imprisoned. It is crucial that measures are taken to ensure the safety of journalists, protection of sources and condemnation of abuses to protect free press, which is absolutely fundamental to the fabric of democracy. At EuropeLex, our thoughts are with the families and friends of Peter R. de Vries and Alexandra Lushkarava this week. Hello there and welcome back to the EuropeLex podcast where we are the only place that you can get all the information you want about polls and elections in Europe without having to go to the dystopian hellscape of Twitter. I'm Ewan Healy and with me of course is Gabriel Hedengren for episode 40. Gabriel, how are you doing? Hi Ewan, crazy episode 40. Can't, can't believe that really. Um, I'm doing fine. I'm a bit bitter because I'm day, I guess technically day nine of self-isolation um following a um fateful dinner i went to <laughs> um last weekend with someone who tested positive so i'm i'm all negative all healthy but like millions and millions of brits i've been stuck indoors this whole week and um it's painful as as everyone's out doing fun stuff well not everyone but a lot of people are so i'm a bit bitter about that but i can't really complain uh, and especially with so much fun politics going on still, you and right? Absolutely. And you used your self-isolation to your benefit and had a great sit-down interview over the phone with a really interesting person this week, didn't you? Indeed. So I spoke with uh, Eugene Sinchevich, who's the president of the PASS Youth in Moldova and a newly elected MP uh, to the country's parliament following the recent elections there. So it was very interesting to speak to him about the recent political history of Moldova and what PASS, who now sits on a great majority in the Moldovan parliament intends to do with that. So yeah, it was very interesting to to get him on the phone uh, from uh, across the continent. Before we get through the news and before you hear that fascinating interview, here's a few thoughts about how you can support our podcast. EuropeLex is run by volunteers. We aren't funded by any big donors and everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters. And we always want to do more. We've started sharing exclusive discussions, special content, and much more via our Patreon. Access all that from as little as just one euro per month. So don't miss out. Support us by becoming a patron on Patreon. So we're going to start our headlines with Moldova. So on July the 11th, which was a busy day, as you will see, with two snap parliamentary elections and a referendum taking place across Europe, Moldova saw the Liberal pass, as expected, becoming the first party in the elections, receiving 52.8% of the vote and 63 seats. This marked a rise of 48 seats since 2019. The Maya Sandu affiliated party actually came first in 26 out of the 33 districts in the country, a stark change to just five in 2019, so two years ago. On the other hand, the newly formed electoral bloc of communists and socialists, or BECS, came second with 27.2% and 32 seats. BEX is the left-wing alliance between the former president Igor Dodon's Party of Socialists and Vladimir Vornin's Party of Communists. Finally, the National Conservative Partido Sor got 5.7% of the vote and was the only other party to receive any seats with six. President Maya Sandu, who was the driving force behind calling this election, is now, of course, in an extremely commanding position in Moldova, controlling both the presidency and the parliament with 63 out of the 101 seats. For more context on the campaign, the results, and what we can all expect coming out of this, do stick around till the end of the episode for my chat with Eugene from Past Youth. What's a trifecta called when there's only two of them? Can you have a bifecta? 
control two houses of government? I don't know, maybe. Bifecta. Well, it is now. <laughs> We've coined it on the podcast. It's called a bifecta. Yeah, Sandu Bifecta. In other snap parliamentary election news that also took place on July 11th, the winner is not quite as clear, so no bifactor in Bulgaria. For the second time this year, Bulgarians headed to the polls, and a very divided and volatile party system was once again depicted. Centre-right Gerb, the party of former Prime Minister Borisov, lost yet again a significant number of votes and fell to 23.2% of the vote and 63 MPs. That's 12 fewer than it received in April's election and 32 fewer than in 2017. The centre-left Bulgarian Socialist Party, which won 27% in 2017, collapsed to third place in April onto 15%, fell even further this time down to 13.2% of the vote and barely remained in third place, with 36 seats down seven from April, which makes it a total 44 seats fewer than it received in 2017. Meanwhile, the main beneficiary of this ITN, the party of Bulgarian late-night TV show host Slavi Trifonov, that rose to prominence during the anti-Borisov protests in 2020, reached first place with 23.8% of the vote and 65 MPs. This is a jump of 14 seats for the newly founded party, that now has to find a way to form a government. Furthermore, the two other protest parties that managed to jump over the 4% threshold back in April remained in Parliament, even seeing a rise in vote share. Democratic Bulgaria came fourth with 34 seats, seven more than they received in April. Meanwhile, Stand Up Mafia Get Out, one of the best party names in Europe, came sixth with 4.95% and 13 seats. Finally, Liberal DPS received around the same as it did in April and received 10.6%, making 29 MPs for the Liberal Party. Meanwhile, Bulgarian Patriots, a coalition of the National Conservative VMRO, right-wing Volia and right-wing NFSB, once again failed to pass the 4% threshold despite combining forces this time, receiving only 3.1% of the vote. We'll keep you updated on the stories as the government attempts to form. So keep an eye on Twitter and, of course, this podcast. And maybe even 2021 will hail a third election in Bulgaria. Nothing is certain except death, taxes and Bulgarian elections. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, so for our last uh, electoral news from July 11th, we head to Slovenia, where Slovenians headed to the polls, not to elect a parliament, but to inquire on changing the country's water management law. Sexy. Uh, back in March, the Slovenian Prime Minister Janis Jansa of the right-wing SDS approved a legislation that would permit the construction of buildings, such as hotels and restaurants, close to water bodies like seas, rivers or lakes. This amendment to the Water Act received major criticism from opposition parties, civil society entities, academics, and the ombudsman um, as well, with environmental associations gathering above 50,000 signatures. And that's what's needed to call for a referendum on an issue in Slovenia. With the participation of 46% of registered voters, the Waters Act referendum had the highest participation rate in a Slovenian referendum since 2007. The results showed an overwhelming defeat and popular disapproval towards the water legislation, with no option receiving over 86.7%, thus presenting a major political setback that could prove to be a serious challenge for the recently appointed president of the Council of the European Union. So an, an embarrassing setback there for the uh, for the president of the Council of the European Union uh, just at the start of his period as that. So yeah, it's um, I do love some referendum news. Yeah, and especially referendums that aren't in Switzerland. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. <laughs> I'm not sure water referendums are quite like the big ticket items for this podcast that I've been hoping for. But I love a constitutional reform referendum or something something sexy like that. With referendums like this, what's what's quite fascinating with them is that if you it is a good way, right, to take a question that would otherwise be quite niche and make it like the center of of politics for a while in the lead up to it. I mean, obviously we've seen that on a massive scale with with Brexit, for example, in the UK. But it's it's interesting that you can also do that with sort of smaller issues in countries where that where there are these sort of processes in place for referenda to be to be set up. Uh, so I guess it's a yeah great job uh, of the people against this bill to be able to to ramp it up to the to the stage where they get this vote and they get all this airtime with the Europe Alex podcast. <laughs>
<laughs> Absolutely. And I think, honestly, it's just mind-blowing that 50% of Slovenians have an opinion about this this bill. 50% of Slovenians care about a random bill about water legislation. Like, not to not to put it down, but, like, it's not sexy and it's not exciting, but 50% of Slovenians were like, well, I'm going to go and vote today. I'm going to take up some of my own personal time to let my opinion be shown on that. And that's magical. It's the magic of democracy. Yeah, and it's interesting as well because, like, while 46% is uh, low, obviously, from a um, democratic perspective, if you look at the turnout of all these other elections that have happened recently, it's not shabby at all. Absolutely not. Speaking of other elections that have been happening recently, uh, on July 8th, a constituency in Ireland held a by-election after the resignation of a former housing minister, Owen Murphy, of the centre-right Fine Gael party. This constituency was, of course, the Dublin Bay South constituency in the capital of Ireland. Ireland famously uses the single transferable vote electoral system for the election of members of parliament in multi-member constituencies. So exact comparisons are fairly difficult to make with by-elections versus the multi-member elections in general elections. But when combining the vote shares of candidates for the same party, Fine Gael won a plurality of the constituency's votes in 2020, uh, while their coalition partner, the Green Party, came a strong second. Fine Gael hoped to hold this seat against an insurgent left-wing Sinn Féin, or, as the campaign progressed, against the incredibly popular centre-left Labour Party, which did not even win one of the constituency's four seats in 2020. The final results, however, showed losses for all three governing parties. Fine Gael was only down slightly in first preferences, but the Green Party crashed from 22% last time to 8% this time, while the Liberal Party Fine Foil fell from 14% to 5%. The coalition's combined vote share almost halved from 64% to 37%, indicating a strong anti-government protest vote. The main beneficiaries were indeed Labour, whose vote surged from 8% to 30% on the first preferences, and at the ninth count, yes, that's the magic of a uh, single transferable vote, it takes that many counts, successfully elected their candidate to become the party's seventh member of parliament. The result was particularly disastrous for Fianna Fáil, formerly the hegemonic party of Irish politics, and the party, of course, of head of government Micheál Martin, who recorded their worst ever result in a constituency in the party's history. And moving away from electoral news, let's go to Sweden, where it would seem that snap elections have been averted, at least for now. Stefan Löfven was re-elected prime minister by the Swedish parliament, with 116 MPs voting for him and 173 MPs voting against him at the chamber's confidence vote. And while this might sound strange, Sweden uses a system of negative parliamentarianism, which means that the nominated prime minister is confirmed unless a majority of MPs vote vote no. So you don't need a majority for your government. You need to avoid a majority against your government, which creates a very peculiar dynamic uh, that's been um, obviously become very clear during the past uh, month's political drama in Sweden. And with the Riksdag having 349 seats, the majority set at 175 MPs. So with 173 against Levian, uh, he's obviously uh, in a quite a precarious situation, but was just able to scrape by. He's now called upon to form a new minority government, which will consist of his party, the centre-left Social Democratic Party, and the Greens, uh, and the next elections are still scheduled for 2022. So while um, seemingly it's the same government coming back, there have just been some very tiny tweaks to, to portfolios, etc. It's a significantly weakened government that's also uh, having to renegotiate its budget later on this year under sort of new, more hostile circumstances in parliament. So Levin has avoided snap elections, but has a tricky year ahead of him, ahead of the regular elections set for next year. And if you want more context on why and how Levian found himself in this position. I'd like to mention that on June 21st, the centre-left leader lost the support of the left party because of a proposed legislation to tackle a housing shortage. So that's how this all started. To figure out how everything went from the left party being against a small change to housing policy to 
almost there being almost a snap election and now going back to status quo <laughs> there's a great piece on the Urbalex website written by our colleague uh, Nasruddin Taibi providing an in-depth analysis of how this all came to be so I'd really recommend you reading that because I appreciate even as a Swede that it can be quite confusing and mind-boggling uh, how this has all panned out but the result for now is Levin is still the prime minister and the government is still centre-left Social Democrats and the Green Party. It's been proper House of Cards level shenanigans in the Swedish parliament this <laughs> yeah. last couple of weeks. It's really then, been dramatic. Yeah, but then this weird thing that tends to happen because of the the rules is that it still sort of feels like it ended up back at square one in, in reality, uh, which I guess is classic. I do remember seeing the ping on my phone that, uh, Levin had survived and thinking, oh, what an anticlimax. climax hoping for a new head of government, but alas, alas, maybe, maybe after the budget, who knows? Who knows? But then it's the interesting dynamic is the fact that we have fixed dates for the regular elections. It's not like in the UK, for example, where once you call an election, you get a new term that starts from that date. The elections are always going to take place in September 2022, which is obviously a huge factor in whether or not you want to call ones early because who really wants to face two elections within a year of each other? Not not a lot of parties do anyway, but yeah. We do here at Europe Elects. <laughs> it would be fun. Election inflation, great for us. But yeah, do read the piece by Nasruddin. <laughs> election inflation. Go in a shop. Go into the shop with a wheelbarrow full of elections, just of elections. trying to buy a loaf of bread. <laughs> oh dear! Uh, but yeah, uh, <laughs> cynically great for your Plex, and I know a lot of you out there uh, also really don't mind uh, having uh, more electoral events to um, to analyze. But yeah, um, still a year or so to go for that to come out of Sweden, and moving from national level shenanigans to uh, European level UN, there's quite a lot of European Parliament news as well. Lots and lots. And so let's kick it off with the MEP Luisa Regimenti, that left the right-wing Lega party from Italy and the Identity and Democracy Group, after being a non-attached MEP in the non-integrates group for a few days, has now decided to join the centre-right Forza Italia that is in the European People's Party group. Meanwhile, the MEP Giuseppe Milazzo left the centre-right Forza Italia and the EPP to join the National Conservative Fratelli d'Italia and the European Conservatives and Reformist Group. So quite a few movements there in the right-wing parties of Italy, as ever, I should say. There's always some shenanigans going on. And not just Italy has had a movement in the European Parliament as MEP Lars Patrick Berg left the right-wing AFD and the ID group and joined the European Conservatives and Reformist group as an independent MEP. Finally, other than all this movement across European Parliament groups, there were some replacements of MEPs as well since our last show, with Croatian Conservative Party's Ruja Tomasic being replaced by Ladislav Icic, and Joao Ferreira of the Portuguese Communist Party being replaced by Joao Pimenta Lopez. Uh, so one Joao traded for another uh, within the Portuguese Communist Party. And now, Ewan, to everyone's favourite segment, dare I say so, polling news. It's polling news time. And for our highlights, we start in France, where an IFOP fiducial poll shows presidential candidate Javier Bertrand of the centre-right Les Républicains defeating incumbent President Emmanuel Macron in a potential runoff election. A defeat of the Liberal candidate in a second round poll had only ever been possible once in January 2016 against Alain Juppé, also of the centre-right party. Javier Bertrand was just successful in getting re-elected in the Rue de France region with 41% of the first round and 52% in the second round. And his recent win, of course, raised his profile. Seems we are slowly gearing up for next year's presidential elections, which we will, of course, be covering. But is it is n'est pas un done deal. Not at all. And from France, we go to Poland, where Donald Tusk's return to national politics and to the leadership of the centre-right's civic platform has brought some changes in the country's latest polls. Specifically, Koalicja Obywatelska, the group uh, the civic platform is part of, has seen a noticeable rise from an average of 17 to 18% just a month ago to over 24%, with the Kantar poll showing them as high as 28 
This seems to have come mainly at the expense of PL2050, but it is of course too soon to tell what the impact of Tusk's return will be. But anyway, huge news, obviously, Tusk's return to Polish politics, so it'd be quite weird, really, if it didn't have uh, a significant impact on the polls there. So yes, obviously, he posted on on those in our feeds. Poland is one of the, the countries with quite a good amount of polls, so I guess it will become clear quite soon uh, whether that bump for civic platform is, is sustained. And from Poland, we go to Slovenia, where the Pirate Party reached an all-time record high with 4.8% in the latest Mediana poll. This is also the first poll that showed the party over the 4% electoral threshold to enter parliament in the next parliamentary elections, which in Slovenia are set to take place in next June, so now less than a year away. So good news if you're a pirate in Slovenia. Finally, as we always do at some point in this segment, we go to the Netherlands, where the centre-right CDA fell to yet another record low recently. This time, they got a 4.1% result in an INO research poll. It is quite clear now that the departure of MP Pieter Omtzigt has affected the party severely. Staying in the Netherlands, in the same poll, there was a party that appeared for the first time, receiving 1.2% of the vote, and that's the right-wing BVNL. Uh, interest of the Netherlands, um, that is in English, is founded by three MPs that left the National Conservative FVD, or the Forum for Democracy, back in May. So as if the Netherlands did not have enough political parties, here we have another one, BVNL, uh, with 1.2% of the vote. So it'll be interesting to see how um, their polling levels develop going forward. I can't help but flag the fact that we haven't talked about Italy. There's been no polling headlines from Italy this week, and that's pretty impressive. I suppose they've probably all just been too consumed by winning the Euros to really notice politics for a little bit. Yeah, no, definitely. And I guess, yeah, yeah, it is weird. But we did get Netherlands, though, so it still feels safe. (laughs) Feels reliable. Feels like everything's, the world's still working properly. And finally, we're just going to bring you the latest numbers from Europolex's June European Parliament projection. If a European Parliament election were to be held today, we project the centre-right European People's Party would, drumroll please, continue to be the largest group with 156 seats, narrowly ahead of the centre-left Socialists and Democrats with 144 seats. During the last month, the Greens' European Free Alliance group saw the largest drop of any group falling three seats to 55, while the right-wing Identity and Democracy group gained three to reach 77. The current European Commission, led by Ursula von der Leyen, supported by the European People's Party, the Socialists and Democrats, and the Liberal Renew Europe, would continue to hold a comfortable majority with 394 seats, around 40 seats higher than the threshold for a majority. That's an increase of one seat from our May projection. For further details and analysis brought by our team and details on the fight for fourth place between the right-wing parties, check out our website. That's all the news we have for you today from around the continent. Thank you so much for listening, but don't go anywhere. Maybe get a snack or a cup of tea because it's time to head to Moldova to unpack the snap parliamentary election with new MP Eugenie Sinchevici. And Gabriel will be there as well. Indeed. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europolex.eu. On July 11th, Moldovans went to the polls to elect a new parliament, and it very soon became clear that the polls leading up to the event were indeed correct, and that the Action and Solidarity Party, or PAS, were the undoubted winners of the night. With 53% of the vote, the party, founded by current president Maya Sandu, got a comfortable own majority in parliament. And with me now to discuss the election and what this means for Moldova is Eugene Sinchevich, who's the president of the PAS Youth Organization and a newly elected MEP in Moldova, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, the youngest MEP as well. So we're really thrilled to have you on the podcast. Hi, Eugene. 
Hi, I'm really thrilled to be here and thank you for the great for the great introduction, Gabriel. It's true, I have been uh, elected as the youngest MP and um, PAS did indeed have 53% of the votes. And in parliament, after the redistribution, we have 63 deputies out of 101. So we have a really strong majority, four, four votes short of a constitutional majority. And the expectations now are really high. So we're quite looking forward to a lot of work the next four years. I can imagine. So I thought for the benefit of our listeners, just to go back in time a bit. So PAS is a relatively young party, at least in um, European standards, formed uh, in 2016. And I think in terms of understanding what your party stands for and what your sort of political goals are, could you just explain sort of the context of the party forming? I know it came during um, a year or so of very widespread protest against corruption and against the political system. Can you just explain sort of why was your party formed and how has that shaped your political uh, ideology and sort of manifesto going into the elections? Yeah, so I would go a little bit uh, further back just to have, have a uh, little bit of context about Moldovan political situation. So after the fall of communism, uh, Moldova had a few governments, but in 2001, Moldova went back to a, a, a full communist party government. It doesn't mean that we changed the communist system. We just had the, the communist party have a solid 71 mandate majority from in 2001. Uh, the Communist Party then did uh, bring some of the communist practices, meaning repression. And uh, long story short, in uh, 2008, quite some scandals about fraudulent elections, there was uh, um, a lot of protests, which are quite known uh, as 7 April protests, which ended up with a lot of violence. But then there was the pro-European opposition who came to power and formed a pro-European alliance. And uh, unfortunately, the first the pro-European alliance was not uh, as good intentioned as people hoped for. And in 2015, Moldova had gone through the biggest bank fraud in Moldovan history. Almost 10% of Moldovan GDP, $1 billion, were stolen from Moldovan bank systems. And all this was organized by the parties in government at that time. And then the protests erupted. And people w wanted some hope. All the current pro-European system of the time were corrupted, participating in the bank fraud. And the uh, PAS was a great alternative, which came at a great time with the president of the party, Maya Sandu, which had previously occupied the position of the Minister of Education and had proven to be really in favor of hard reform, even if the reform is not uh, pleasant. And then people started uniting around Maya Sandu, and the party grew. In 2016 presidential elections, Maya Sandu and PAS party were really close to victory. One year after the party was formed, Maya Sandu managed to obtain 48% of the votes in the second round, which is an amazing result for a new party. In the meantime, one of the oligarchs, Vlad Plachetnyuk, had slowly but surely occupied and became controlling almost all of the Moldovan institutions, starting from the parliament, buying MPs one by one until he obtained the majority, and then ending up with the, the, the justices, the Supreme Court, the judges on all levels, the general prosecutor, and all the enforcing, enforcement institutions, until the country became, became under his personal control. At that, that time, past and other opposition parties were beginning to to do the coalitions against him. So, first of all, in 2016, Maya Sandu uh, was supported by Andrei Nastasi, who was also a leader of also pro-European party, also reason during the protests. And in 2016, he supported Maya Sandu. Yeah, and the next bigger elections after that were 2018 local elections, where the main, the main election was in Chisinau, it, it, 2018 uh, snap election for Chisinau, where uh, it, this time PAS uh, supported the Andrei Anastasia, the candidate, and he 
obtained a great victory against the Plachetnik regime at that time. But the justices, which were uh, under Plachetnik's control, decided to cancel the result of elections. This, in turn, caused uh, a big backslash, both internally, with huge protests, and externally, with Comis of Venice and um, European Court of Human Rights declaring that such action of cancelling the results of election is a deep violation of human rights and of democracy. And uh, but in the same on the same time, this event shown everyone, both in Moldova and the world, that the regime which uh, Plahetnik and the Democrat Party has constructed in Moldova was uh, an oligarchic one deemed to threaten democracy and get rid of democratic principles. Fast forward to 2019, we had a parliamentary elections and all of the opposition pro-European parties formed electoral bloc because at that time the Democrat Party stole mixed system, meaning that half of the people were elected by the party list and half of the people were elected by the districts. And in these elections, their party would benefit because they had a lot of administrative resources and because they gave a little bit less uh, districts to diaspora, uh, only one for Western diaspora and one for American diaspora and one for Russian diaspora. Meanwhile, in the votes, diaspora represents 10% of the votes. So uh, under representation of diaspora, gerrymandering and uh, administrative resources had benefited Democratic Party. And in the newly elected 2019 parliament, we had a, for the following situation. One third, roughly one third, was controlled by the Democratic, the Plachetnik Party, one third by Socialist Pro-Russian Party, and one third by pro-democratic forces, meaning PAS with Maya Sandu and Platforma Da with Andrei Anastasi. And uh, the following three months really was uh, something historical for Moldova, because even though PAS and Platforma, pro-European parties and the socialist pro-Russian party had nothing in common, we were two really opposing parties and had different views almost on every subject. The, the push and the pressure from the people, from the grassroots people to unite, to overthrow the dictator was overwhelming. No one wanted to continue the life uh, the way it was with controlled institution, with threats and uh, different oppression. And people really put pressure both on, on our part on pro-European parties and on the socialist pro-Russian parties. And on 9th of, of June 2019, pro-Russian uh, parties and pro-European parties sat on the table of dialogue. At that time, we managed to agree at a momental or a temporary coalition just to overthrow the dictator. But the dictator was not so happy to be overthrown. First of all, there was a fake alert of the bomb in parliament. Police surrounded the parliament and refused to let uh, the MPs enter it. Then he organized some fake protests with people who were threatened to, in order to participate. The parliament, where in the end the parties managed to met in order to vote the new government, there was no light. The secretariat of the parliament was not uh, in the building at the time. Moreover, the um, Constitutional Court decided to not recognize the coalition between pro-Russian and pro-European parties on the ground that it was 90 days after the elections. In Constitution, it specifies that after three months, the parliament can be dissolved, and the Supreme Court issued an interpretation that three months equal 90 days even though it is not how it is, uh, how it is um, interpreted in other uh, constitutional court decisions. Then we had a couple of days of duality of power. On the one hand, we had the government presiding in the government building by the Plachetnik. On the other hand, we had 
the uh, newly formed government by the pro-Russian pro-European party resigning in the parliament. This duality uh, happened for a couple of days. Slowly but surely, people became uh, a little bit anxious about what's going to happen next. And in the end, we organized, we announced a grand protest in the central square in order to make sure that the new government is the is the legitimate one. And uh, a day after we announced the protest, it was clear that it's going to be the most attended protest of all of all in Moldovan history, with hundreds of thousands ready to participate. And in the same day, uh, Plachetniuk and his party announced that they are withdrawing from government. He himself flew away to hide in Miami. And uh, other oligarchs who were with him participating in the, in the usurping of power also flew away. And uh, the Constitutional Court resigned and um, canceled their decision of uh, dismissing the parliament. Followed uh, a five-month period of uh, pro-European and pro-Russian coalition government. The government where Maya Sandu was prime minister and all ministers, almost all ministers, were from past. And we managed to obtain a lot of important reforms we managed to clean a lot of institutions, uh, but when we decided to clean the general prosecutioner office, the pro-Russians had it enough. So they, together with what remained from the old democratic uh, party, dismissed our pr prime minister, and they were in government until 2020. In, tw in 2020, we had new presidential elections, again Maya Sandu against Dodon, pro-Russian candidate, when this time Maya Sandu won with 57% of the votes. Her promise to the people were that she will organize snap elections, which she uh, managed to do. It was a long five months periods of legal battles, protests and pressure. But finally we managed to obtain the snap elections in which PAS, the party which supported the president Maya Sandu, the pro-European party obtained 53% of the votes, as you just said. And uh, in percentages, we had the highest result in, in Moldovan history. And it's the first time the pro-European party has a majority in parliament. So now we are excited for the future. Yeah, um, yeah thank you for that, for that summary. That's, that's really useful. Um, I want to talk a bit about, about the result and I guess about the more short-term lead-up to to the elections because we obviously love love polling and while you say for a long time pass was you know at about 25 30 percent you said you you like you said there were there was sort of like a three-tiered system but then something happened i guess it was at the start of this year so there's been quite a rapid growth for the party you know it's doubled in size in in a year and a half so so I know you touched on it just briefly now, but what is it about 2021 that's propelled past? Is it the presidency and people seeing the effects of that? Have there been any other events and how much of it has been successful campaigning on your part, which I know you've been heavily involved with, obviously, as a youth leader and um, parliamentary candidate for the party? I think most parties would love to have such growth. Um, what is it that you've done um, or what's happened for that to happen in a rather short period of time, this last growth spurt? Yeah. Uh, first factor is that we, of course, have a president. A and, and we can see it all the time that the, after the president wins an election, he will win the parliament if, if they're scheduled really close one to another. We can see it in Ukraine with Zelensky party obtaining a vast majority after the presidential elections. We can see it in France with the party led by Macron obtaining a majority in parliament after the presidential elections. And we can see it in other places as well. But let, let me go a little bit back. When Maya Sandu was a candidate in 2016 and all other elections, there was a lot of lies about her. Uh, people were saying that uh, she uh, that she will bring and thousands of immigrants that she'll bring the NATO army in Moldova. 
that she will uh, make everyone gay in Moldova because in Moldova we have a lot of a really homophobic society. And uh, and then after the presidential elections, my son won, and none of the fake news, none of the scary um, s- scary threats which by which the socialists lied to people, none of this happened. And people realized that all of them, it, it, they were all a lie. And, and actually, Maya Sandu is a good leader who can, uh, give, who can act decisively and who can bring real change. So this was the second factor, that all of the fakes now were debunked at, at one instant. Uh, and the third one, it was the... The, the third one was the past consistency, is that the, from the start, past said that we are the party which is going to rely on small donors. We're not going to accept uh, one oligarch financing the party, only thousands of donors. And since then, we were consistent both in our financing, both in our policy and in our, in our values, and also in our promises. Because... Even though we promised the, to organize snap elections, at one point the Socialist Party uh, proposed to us that they'll give us the government, they'll give us the prime minister, everything we want. But even though even though the temptation was high at the moment and the pressure from the pandemic and uh, the economic situation was high, we still remain on the position of snap elections, and people really appreciate appreciated it. And also, also there is the fourth, which is the campaigning. Uh, in 2016, it was the first experience for the party to organize a campaign. And then every campaign since then, since then was a little bit and a little bit better. Now, we, after we had a lot of campaigns, we have a lot of good systems. We have a lot of processes put in place. We have volunteers who are experienced in communication. And we have a communication team which helps us talk to, directly to people. And um, we were able to go to every house in Moldova, knock on people's door, talk to them about their problem, uh, about their problems and how to solve them, and and make sure that the campaign is uh, focused around our agenda, which was fight against corruption. So I think these factors made sure that PAS obtained uh, such a large majority. And I think we have to touch again on Maya Sandu, because obviously she's undeniably a cornerstone to the success of PAS, to the founding of PAS. And I think many um, many of our listeners who might not be experts in Moldovan politics, but that follow our feeds and that are sort of on political Twitter will will know there's a lot of memes around her. It's uh, it's almost like a personal cult around Maya Sandu because of um, because of her success as a politician and, and campaigner. So look, what is it about her leadership that you think has made her so successful? And how much of the party's success would you uh, attribute to her personally because i think from the outside most of what you see um is uh, admiration of 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 maya sandu uh, so can you just discuss that that dynamic is she sort of all powerful within the party um what's your view on her as a leader and um her role as president now going forward yes i i personally as a lot of people admire maya sandu because as a leader, she is not going to compromise to which she shouldn't go. Uh, and let me give you just one example. After the, the theft of the century, after one billion was stolen from the banks, my son was proposed to be the prime minister. So she was really close to being in power, but she didn't accept it. And she, instead, she gave some conditions. She wanted the general prosecutioner removed from the office and she wanted some strong reforms in justiciary because she understood that if she will be the prime minister with the old people in place, nothing is going to happen and she's going to be a scapegoat for everything that goes wrong. So she, was not, she not, did not accept the power without making sure that the systems would be clean. 
And these characteristics of Maya Sandu, not uh, caring too much about the, the position or the power, but really caring about the values and what is right and what is wrong, this is really rare for a politician. And people could trust Maya Sandu. And uh, this is a great benefit because she's not rich. She came back from Moldova from the World Bank where she had a great salary. She came to Moldova to a country which uh, is, not, is not very rich. She lived off her savings. She still lives very modestly in a small apartment and drives a modest car. And uh, that's who people want to see as a leader. A leader who doesn't compromise with uh, anything against the law. A leader who has values, first of all. And then she built around her a group of people which shared the same values. And uh, it, it's true that in, in the beginning, the group was small. And we had to refuse a lot of people who did not share the same values, which should certainly slowed the process of growing of the party. But in, ter- in long term, this resulted in a big and clean party. And of course, Maya Sand will remain the cornerstone of the values of our party. So we've talked about corruption, which obviously plays a huge part in all of these developments, uh, as is the case for a lot of countries um, in Europe. And sort of the other big question that I think we should touch on before wrapping up is obviously the question of um, of Europe, of European integration. It's very clear to outside observers that, you know, even more passive ones, that a big issue for Maya Sandu and Pass is um, looking at Moldova's accession into the EU and also NATO, those sort of key policy goals. Why do you think this would be strategically good for Moldova? And two, how realistic do you think it is for Moldova to become part of the EU? By when do you think it, it, it might happen? So I think for Moldova, it is crucial to become a part of European family, to integrate in the EU. It's going to be crucial both for Moldovan economy, for Moldovan institutions, and for Moldovan people. Uh, it is, your European integration will be the one of the most important or the most important priority for Moldova on the external uh, policy. We're going to make uh, everything that we can to begin the process of Europe integration by 2025. And we hope that after that, we will move as fast as possible to become a part of European family. Europe has been consistent in helping Moldova and supporting Moldovan institutions. And Europe currently is the cornerstone of democracy in the world, based on my personal opinion. That's why for Moldova, it's going to be a priority to becoming a part of the European Union. And finally, in terms of economics and social rights, I think Moldova is obviously one of the poorest countries in Europe with a lot of economic and social issues and poverty. What's your plan to counteract that and to also help improve sort of the everyday conditions for Moldovans sort of beyond trying to sort out the institutions and beyond, you know, having this new clear line on foreign policy, what are you going to do on a more micro level for people to, to help Moldova develop um, economically? Yes. So, of course, as if we talk about economics, the, the, the cornerstone of good economics are the good institutions. So this is where we have to start. You, 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 because you won't open a business if you are afraid that one poli- policeman can come uh, to your door and uh, threaten you into paying him a bribe. Or, then a, or, or if a justice or a judge can uh, just take away your business uh, at their will. So no good econo- economy can be built on the foundation of corruption and bad institutions. So our first priority is going to be reforming the institutions, making sure that our judicial system is independent, that it is just, and that people can be confident while opening their business, both internal investors and external investors. And the next step is going to be making sure that the bureaucratic process of opening a business 
and conducting is, is accessible for everyone. So we are going to focus on debureaucratization, making the uh, institutions and the processes really accessible for people. And then, of course, after the entrepreneurs have all the conditions they need, we will pay attention for on the people who work for public institutions to raise their wages, to raise the pensions, to uh, encourage young people to participate in the workforce, and uh, young families to also be active economically. So this is going to be our priorities. And of course, if uh, if Moldova will present a lot of ambitious reform, we will benefit from Europe, which is going to ensure some good flow of investment in the economy, which will uh, be helpful in, uh, in, in, in the great push, first push to economy, to make sure it starts moving. Thank you so much, Eugene, for, for coming to speak to the Europelex podcast. I really appreciate it. I understand it's in a very, very intense time for you um, and everyone in Moldova, and especially everyone involved in, in the political system. So thank you so much for taking your time to speak to us. And uh, I hope you settle in well in your new role as MP and that um, and that Moldovans can can see their country improve further in, in, in the years to come and that the system um, democratizes uh, in every way. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you very much. I, it was a pleasure talking to you. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Europelex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe. And of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, and YouTube. We're spreading across as many platforms as we can. Uh, you can find us at europelex.eu and at europelex across all social media, except Instagram, where we're at at europe underscore lex. See you next time. You've been listening to the Europelex podcast, hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and my colleague, Gabriel Hedengren. The managing editor was Polychronus Karampalas. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Yorgos Kokoris, Guillaume Ferreira de Senda, and Yanis Arshakian. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do is possible because of our patrons on Patreon. Cool, cool, cool. I think we nailed the filler chat this week. Yeah, indeed. I think we did.